Hey everybody, my name is Aisha Gladi and I'm an alcoholic. I am grateful to be here and grateful to be sober tonight. And uh, I want to thank Pedge for asking me to come out. I am one of those people that have been raised in AA to say yes to any AA request. And, uh, you know, it's going to be midnight when this meeting's over, so it takes a lot. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm stay up late anyway. So um, I am, I'm excited to be here and, um, you know, I don't know that there's uh, any real honors in AA, but I, I take it, I consider it an honor whenever I'm asked to share my story because I'm a firm believer that <clears throat> that's all we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? It's our stories that we get to share and hopefully carry a message of depth and weight. So somebody can relate in and, and realize that they never have to feel the way they did the day before they came into Alcoholics Anonymous ever again, you know? And, uh, and so that, Again, I mean, I've done all sorts of service, but I take, you know, I, I really do appreciate the ability or the, the opportunity to share my story. So um, if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Everybody picked up chips. Congratulations. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I have a sobriety date, uh, and that's October 17th of 2002. I have a sponsor, and I have a home group, and those will be the three most important things that come out of my mouth tonight. The rest is just my experience uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, but those three things uh, are the foundations upon which my recovery is built. I am a, I am firmly believe that I would not be here without those three things. I have a sponsor who guides me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and gives me an objective view of my life. Like Bruce alluded to, he doesn't uh, micromanage my life. He doesn't make me do, he can't make me do anything. He doesn't, uh, what he does is he gives me that objective view. You're going to hear in the next 30 minutes or so um, that, uh, you know, I'm emotionally invested in the decisions that I make. And I think that they're all really good ideas, you know, um, but <laughs> you're going to hear that they're really not. <laughs> I don't have good ideas whatsoever. So, you know, he knows my inventory and he's like, he might be, he'll be like, Hey, hold on a second. This is what happened last time. Are you sure you want to do this again? Kind of thing. Because, uh, I usually am only concerned about like the one foot circumference around my, my, myself. And I'm not worried about what's happening 50 yards downfield. Uh, I have a home group, which is a meeting I've attended ever since I got sober and I've had service there. It's the Midtown group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Sunday nights. Uh, it's a 350 to 400 person speaker celebration meeting. Uh, and it is quite a production it is, uh, there's an atmosphere of recovery in that meeting and it's, uh, it's awesome. And if you want to attend, we meet on Zoom and I can share the link with you guys later. But I've had service there and I go there. I'm there. Every, I was there every Sunday night until uh, we had kids. My wife and I had a custody battle over the meeting and uh, I get to go three weeks out of the month and she goes one. Uh, and so now we're on Zoom. We can both go. But uh, but I, I, it's the place where it's my where people know me. You know what I mean? I can walk in that room and people ask me how I'm doing and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. And they look at me and they're like, really, what's up? You know, because uh, I don't know if there's anybody else on this call like me, but I, I, I would rather look good and let you know that I'm dying in the room of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. At 17 years sober, I still have that pride and ego. I mean, I will, I will go to the mat for you if you need some help in AA. I will, I will go and, uh, and I will do it for you. But when it comes to asking for help, it's still like pulling teeth. So, uh, and I have my sobriety date and I say this anytime I get the opportunity to speak. Um, I do not believe that we are special, that we are alcoholic. We're all God's kids, alcoholic or not, but we 
as alcoholics are blessed that we get the opportunity to live two different lifetimes, two different lives in the same lifetime. We get the one before Alcoholics Anonymous, which is pain, chaos, suffering, and misery for us and the people that love us. Uh, and then the one after, if we, come, if we come here and we do what's outlined in the program of action in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we get a life that's promised happy, joyous, and free. And that's for us and the people that love us. You know, I say this every time I speak too, that my mom and my sister became two of the nicest people in the entire world after I got sober, right? And that has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me and my recovery. And so, uh, you know, if you get nothing else out of what I say here tonight, I hope that you understand that I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it is the greatest thing on, on this planet. I believe it's divinely given and it has absolutely transformed my life and the lives of the people that I care about most in the world today. Um, I, I live, my wife and I have talked about this a lot that, uh, you know, you hear people come in here in, into Alcoholics Anonymous and they, and they get sober and they say that I got my life back. And, and we talk about this and say, like, what I had before I got into Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't a life. I was existing. I got a life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and I, I have an, and it's an abundant life. And it's not in the material sense. I mean, material stuff has come and go, come and gone in my sobriety. Um, but it's in, it's in the inner life that I have today. And it's in the relationships that I have with people today and the relationship that I have with the higher power. So, um, you know, I love, like I said, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm going to tell you what I was like, what happened and what, what I'm like today. And uh, what it was like was, you know, alcoholism affected my life from a very young age. We were living, I was living in Minnesota and uh, my dad was an alcoholic. I woke up one night and I heard my mom crying. It was the middle of the night and I walked into the kitchen. I was about 10 years old and I saw her crying. And uh, there were two police officers there and I asked her what was wrong. And she said, daddy's dead. And uh, my dad was, like I said, an alcoholic. Uh, and he, he killed himself. Um, he tried to get sober. I know this because I have a 30 day chip, 60 day chip, 90 day chip of his. Uh, I have his 12 and 12 and I actually have a 24 hour day book that has phone numbers in it. So I actually, and there's even a medallion from a rehab. So he tried, he just didn't get it. Shortly thereafter, we moved to uh, a really nice community in, in Maryland. And uh, I didn't really, I, I was going to say I didn't want for much. I wanted everything. <laughs> I wanted a lot, um, but I didn't need anything. You know, my mom provided I mean, a single first generation woman provided everything that me and my sister needed. You know, we had food, we had, we had shelter, we had clothing, we had everything that we needed. It was, it was fine. But what the problem was, is I was in this upper middle class white community and, uh, and I was a short fat Indian kid and uh, everybody had two parents. I had one. Uh, they, their parents were wearing, I mean, I mean, their cars, their parents were driving like Mercedes and Toyotas. My mom was driving a copper Pontiac station wagon. They were wearing polos and Izod's and I was wearing Garanimals. You know what I mean? And you could just tell that I was different, right? And you hear in the rooms of alcohol all the time, I feel different than my fellows. And, you know, it wasn't hard to figure it out. I mean, I have physical evidence that I was different than my, my fourth grade picture is like, there's everybody else in me, right? It's not, that's not hard to figure out where Waldo is. And, uh, and so that makes me really uncomfortable, right? It makes me totally uncomfortable. And, but that doesn't make me alcoholic. And my dad, you know, killing himself and being an alcoholic doesn't make me alcoholic. They both, you know, one sucks and, and one makes me uncomfortable. But 
what makes me alcoholic is what happens when I drink beverage alcohol. And my first experience with alcohol is I was walking, I was 15 years old and we were walking home from school and me and a few guys and we uh, found, we ran, we came across a bunch of beers sitting in the park. I don't know, some guys must've gotten scared off and left them or whatever. And these guys picked them up and they popped them open, started open, opened it up and started drinking. And I never really thought about drinking or cared about drinking at that point. It was nowhere. It wasn't, it wasn't really on my radar, but what had happened at that moment was uh, my head said, if you don't do this, they'll never ask you to do anything ever again. So I drank and uh, I didn't get drunk that day. I, you know, it was warm beer we found in a park. It was disgusting. I spit it out the first sip and then we finished that off. But, what I believe happened for me now, knowing about alcoholism and what it says in the doctor's opinion, I said, I put alcohol into my system and I started the allergic reaction, right? And that was, that was first started by the phenomenon of my craving. I mean, I'm sorry, the obsession of the mind. Because for the next two weeks until I, uh, until I went to my first keg party, I now thought about alcohol almost every day. I wanted to know what it tasted like, what it smelled like, what it felt like, what the big deal was, why everybody talked about it, why everybody drank it. And, uh, and I started to pay more attention to like the, the absolute ads and the magazines and stuff like that. And everything started to be around alcohol. And then I went to that first keg party and I remember having the red cup and I remember going to the keg and I remember taking the first, drinking that first beer. And I remember waking up the next day. And to me now that's the phenomenon that now I know that this phenomenon I'm craving, right? You hear it in the rooms all the time. You, you drink until you run out, pass out or blackout. And, uh, and that's really kind of how I ended up drinking for the next 17 years. I, uh, I love the effect produced by alcohol. I love everything about alcohol. You know, I hear people stand up from the podium and say they didn't even like the taste of alcohol. And I'm like, that sucks for you. <laughs> you know, like I love everything about alcohol. And uh, I mean, I love like dive bars. I love clubs. I love you know, drinking at concerts. I love like, I used to, I have a motorcycle, I like motorcycle bars. I mean, I like everything about it. I mean, even the glassware, right? I love beer glasses, martini glasses, wine glasses, scotch glasses, like the dew on the side, the condensation coming down, a nice cold beer. Like I love alcohol. Um, it does something for me that it doesn't do to everybody else, right? What alcohol does for me, it does for one in 10. And the best way that I can say that to describe it is uh, it changes my perception of the world, right? Like, because when I looked in the mirror every day, I hated what I saw. And when I drank, it washed away all the feelings of insecurity, inferiority, uh, and, and it leveled the playing field. It allowed me to look you in the eye, right? And so it changes, when I say it changes my perception of the world, that's a big deal. But what it also does, it changes the way that I, it changes the way that I think about you and I think about myself in the world. But more importantly, for a guy like me who drinks for acceptance and drinks for effect, I, I, it changes the way that I think that you think about me and it allows me to think that I'm okay. Right. Because when I drank, like I said, like when I looked in the mirror, I hated what I saw. And so when I drank though, I could be all of the stuff that I wasn't, I could be taller. I could be skinnier. I could be whiter. I could be more athletic. I could be sexier. I mean, you know, I joke about it. It was like, when I drank, I could be the Hindu Brad Pitt, you know? And uh, it was like, it did something for me. And it doesn't do that to the average normal drinker right the average normal person drinks alcohol as a beverage now i think about that seriously for a second right they drink it like they drink water iced tea or soda like that's what they do 
like there's there's pairing menus, right? They like they drink wine to enhance the flavor of their food type stuff, right? I mean, that's what they do. And I need it to survive in the world, right? I need it to be okay. It's the elixir of life for me. And that what that's what I believe makes me alcohol, right? So uh I went to I grew up in the eighties and I still think that contributes to my alcoholism in some way, shape or form. It was an awful time. I don't know if you guys ever seen this, the movie 16 Candles. I, uh, there's a character named Ducky and uh, I was like a Hindu Ducky. I had bangs. I was like, remember Flock of Seagulls? I sort of had this hair, like, I had bangs, I had rat tails, I had earrings in both ears, I wore thin black leather ties, uh, blazers to work. I was like a cross between Don Johnson and Billy Idol. And it was awful, it was awful. And, uh, and I got picked on a lot. And, uh, and so what I, what I did was I ended up hanging, I started to, I didn't fit in at school. So I started hanging out with my mom's friends, kids, a bunch of Indian kids. <coughs> I worked in a, um, I worked in a place that was, uh, <laughs> if you guys believe it or not, we used to develop film for those of you guys that don't, it was called a place called Moto Photo. And, you, and so I used to develop film and I learned how to make fake IDs using the camera equipment. So I made fake IDs and I was able to get alcohol. And then, uh, and this other kid, this other Indian kid did drugs. And so we were the bad boys of the group and we would go out on the weekends and we would get the alcohol and, and just, uh, and people, the girls would want to be around us and the guys would think we were cool. And, and I sort of created the reputation and the fellowship that I craved. And it was, and it felt, it felt great, you know, even though I didn't fit in in regular school. And I didn't have a lot of consequences at the time. School came pretty easily to me. Uh, so I didn't have to try hard, so I didn't, and, uh, I still was able to do fairly well and I wasn't drinking every day. I was just drinking when I could on the weekends and, and, uh, but I still was an uncomfortable, I was uncomfortable all the time. And, uh, and you know, what happened for me, this is the best way I can, this is a story that best illustrates kind of what alcohol does for a guy like me. I, uh, I was going to high school and. At the end of the senior year, my, my mom paid for a vacation for a, a senior trip. A group of kids, you know, a school-sponsored trip, and, uh, and it was to Rio de Janeiro, and I was totally excited. I was going to be in a foreign country, and it was going to be awesome. And I look at this list of people, and uh, the people on there are, that are going, and it turns out it's all these guys that I've been fighting with and being picked on, right? It was all the jocks and the cool kids. And I was terrified that I was going to be in a foreign country with little to no adult supervision uh, and basically getting my ass kicked for 10 days, you know, up and down the beaches of Ipanema. And, uh, and I tried to get my money back and I couldn't. And what happened was uh, I had to go. And so I get on this plane and I have the middle seat, right? Of course, I have the middle seat between two of these guys who I've literally fought with for three years. And uh, we we take off and we start talking, you know, and, and, and we take off and I don't know if it was the eighties or not, that's waters or whatever, but the lady asked us if we want anything to drink and we ordered liquor. And from that moment until the time we landed, we were drunk and we were drinking every day. And it was like the last three and a half years it never happened. And, uh, we had, the, I had the best time of my life until that point, I can tell you. And, uh, and what happened was we get back on Monday and the guys waved me, like, pull into the parking lot and I go to my side where the losers hang out and they went like this. And they waved me over. And, uh, and you hear it in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time, that, that feeling of you have arrived. That was it. That was that moment for me. It was that moment where, you know, I realized, I mean, it, was, it was like, 
under my own power, I could not, I was not able to be with these people and do those things that I thought that I wanted to do. But with alcohol, it allowed, it gave me the power to do it, right? And, uh, and that's what it did. It, it, to me, it like expanded the quality of my life. And a friend, I talk about it a lot. I talk about these pinnacle moments in your drinking. And it's like that, that, that moment or those moments in time when you're drinking where everything lines up perfectly. You don't overshoot the mark. And it's like the sea parts and the skies open and the angels sing and you are, and you got it. And it's that feeling, right? It's like utopia. <clears throat> and that's the feeling, right? That's the feeling that I think that I can always, that I can attain again. And I've come to believe that it's what we talked about when you, what Jason read earlier about chasing into the gates of insanity and death. That's the feeling that I think that I can recreate every time I drink and they come far and few between, but they come enough that I think I can do it again. And that's why I keep drinking the way I keep drinking because I think I can get there again. And, uh, and so I, you know, I went to, I ended up graduating high school and uh, I went to the university of Maryland and I commuted for the first couple of years. And those Indian kids, uh, that I was friends with, um, I started, my drinking took off to another level and I started to become a different person. I started to get into fights, more fights. I started to break into cars because these guys wanted me to come with them. And I, again, I wanted, I thought if I didn't hang out with them, they would never, if I didn't do that with them, they wouldn't hang out with me. And, uh, I started to cheat on girlfriends. I started to cheat in school. Like I just started to end my drinking took off, you know? And so those kids got those Indian kids that I was friends with for a long time started to get sick of me and, and they didn't want me around. And, uh, and then I moved on to campus the second year and that Indian kid that I was, that did drugs, I joined a fraternity and introduced me to some guys and, and it made sense to me because I'll join a fraternity because you pay these guys, you get to drink as much as you want and they have to be your friends. <laughs> That's what I thought, right? Found out that they didn't have to be your friends. But uh, I was pledging this fraternity and I moved off campus and uh, my mom lived about 30 minutes from the University of Maryland and I drove home drunk one night after a pledge party and uh you know i don't talk about drinking and driving with any sort of pride or anything like that i'm I, i'm just glad nothing ever happened i did it a lot uh, but i got home that night and my mom called me wanted me to come home and uh i couldn't right i was too drunk and i told her i couldn't she called me again and i told her i couldn't come home she said she was throwing up and needed me the next time she called i couldn't lift my head off the pillow and that was like you know, four or five in the morning i guess Next call I got was 10 o'clock in the morning and it was my uncle and uh, my mom had had a heart attack. And now uh, and I'm 30 minutes from the hospital and uh, I didn't get there until one o'clock in the afternoon. I just couldn't physically do it. <clears throat> and uh, I get there and I get to my mom's in the ICU and I walk into the ICU and there's my whole extended family. My uncles, my aunts, my grandfather, my sister. And I don't look good. I don't smell good. I don't feel good. And, uh, and they, they hit me with the look, you know, and that look is the look of how could you, or why did you, or you did it again, or you promised. And it's then that translates into the feeling of incomprehensible demoralization, a feeling that I know deep down in my soul, right? Because the, the answer isn't screw you, I want to drink. That's not the conscious answer that I have. That's what I'm doing. Because these are, but these are the people that I love most in the world. And what happens is they become collateral damage. They become in collateral damage in my quest to feel good about myself and to fit into the world. And the only way I do that is through selfishness, this and self-centeredness and getting what I want 
when I need it without any regard for how I affect you. My mom was in the hospital for a few weeks and uh, I only saw her a couple times. And I was convinced when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous it was because uh, I thought she was gonna die. And I'd be alone having just me and my, well, just me and my sister, we would be alone. And, uh, and after coming here and getting down to the causes and conditions of my drinking, um, the reason that I didn't go see her was because I was still pledging that fraternity. And I thought if I didn't go to those events that they wouldn't have me. I drank for acceptance and I drank for effect. And, uh, and that's the guilt and shame that I bring into Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I, uh, I have searched my entire life to try to fit in somewhere. You know, I've done Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. I played little, you know, little league baseball, little league basketball, little league football choir, you know, I played the clarinet. I mean, I did, I did all sorts of stuff to try to fit in somewhere until I got here. I never belonged, you know? <coughs> My late grand sponsor used to say, he used to say, you can't go to the grocery store and the, and the grocery clerk ask you how you're doing. And you're saying, well, I'm a little bit in my head. I'm feeling a little crazy, a little suicidal. And, you know, they'd be like, they'll call the cops, right? And like, you're like, and you come into an AA meeting and you say that stuff. And the first thing you guys laugh, right? And then the next thing you say is, have you eaten? <laughs> right? And, uh, and that's why we get each other. That's why I know I belong here. So, so I went to the University of Maryland. I got kicked out. Uh, I, I mean, uh, my, after my second year, my third year, I got kicked out because of grades, because I stopped going to class. And uh, I paid my fraternity dues while I went to a community college because that made sense so I could keep going to the parties and drink. And, uh, and then I got back in, you know, and during college, it was like, I was the, I was, um, I just, I loved to party. I loved every, I like, felt like I was free. So I grew my hair long and uh, I followed the Grateful Dead. I was like, I had a bunch of friends, so nobody ever really knew how bad it was going to get. So I would wear my tie dyes and Birkenstocks and hang out with my deadhead friends. I would wear my baseball hat backward, my duck boots and my fraternity levers and hang out with my fraternity brothers. I would wear my uh, hair slipped back in a ponytail and wear a like silk shirt and a blazer and go clubbing downtown in DC like Fabio. And, uh, and I just went from friend and group to group to group and nobody ever knew how bad I was. Because as soon as it started to get bad or they started to say anything, I would just go on to the next people and not see them for a few weeks. And, uh, and that's what I did. I got out of the University of Maryland and I moved into, I moved a few different places and I picked up a, while I was at the University of Maryland, <laughs> I like to try to always figure out a way to sugarcoat this. Like I became an entrepreneur and, or a, a, an import export dealer. I was a fucking drug dealer. Excuse me. I was a drug dealer. And, uh, and, and I started, I took that out into, into DC and, um, and I got out of the college and I, when I moved into DC, I'll tell you the greatest aspiration I had, this is it. I wanted to be able to go to the bar like, and order the usual and have the bartender know exactly what I meant. That's how high I was shooting. Like it wasn't about career or family or money or success. It wasn't anything. It was literally, I wanted to be able to go to the bar, order the usual and have a bartender know what I meant. That's where, those were my life goals. That's where I had gotten. And uh, I, I worked downtown <clears throat> a few different jobs or actually two different jobs. First job was like an office boy and I would go to work and, uh, I would, I would be so hungover uh, day after day that I would literally go into the bathroom, uh, pretend I was going to the bathroom and fall asleep. And, uh, and then I would get another job. I got another job in an international organization somehow. I don't know what was happening. I mean, this is career dream job. And, um, 
I got this job and I had these duties that I had to do every morning. I had my own office and I would go in and I would do these things for like an hour and a half every morning. And then I would <coughs> close the door, sleep and, and sleep under my desk. And, uh, and it was an international organization. So the cafeteria sold beer and wine. And I would go to the cafeteria and I would have something to take the edge off and to get me to happy hour. And then I would get to happy hour and I would, and I would drink. And, uh, and there were times that it got so bad. I knew it was bad. I knew it was bad. And I would go to my apartment and I, you know, I would write these, I would put post-it notes all over my, all over my apartment. They'd be, you know, in the refrigerator, on the phone, on, on the bathroom mirror, on the computer, on my pillow, front and back of the door, you know, going, coming and going on the doors that just said no more. And, uh, and I would try so hard and I would come home and I would try so hard and I could last like, you know, sometimes it was 10 minutes, sometimes it was like 35, 40 minutes, but by, you know, I started pulling the notes down and, uh, and I would be calling the, the Chinese restaurant that delivered beer and wine and the drug dealer that would come to my house. And that was it. And I just thought my, my life was destined to suck and I learned to manage to suck. And my relationship with God at this point was like, you know, you're not going to make me quit like you made my dad quit. You know, uh, you can knock me down. I'm going to pick myself up, dust myself off. I'm going to flip you the bird and, I'm, and we're going to keep fighting is really what I thought. And, uh, <clears throat> and on March 28th of 2001, I woke up and those four dudes were sitting on the side of the bed again, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, like they always were. And, and I was like, all right, we're going to have another day. And I went to work that day and uh, I got a call from security and they asked me to come down to pick up a FedEx package. And, and I intuitively knew something was wrong because this was an 8,000 person international organization and security does not deliver FedEx. And, uh, and so I went down to the main building of the campus and right outside the front door of the main building, uh, I was arrested by the DEA for conspiracy to distribute MDMA. Commonly known as ecstasy as it says, right across the front of my indictment. And, uh, and I went from being whatever I thought I was, cool club kid, you know, whatever, I don't even know, to being the worst here in the total. And, uh, and my life changed. And there was that feeling I had to go home and tell my mom her son was a drug dealer. And, uh, and man, it was that feeling of incomprehensible demoralization again, you know? And, uh, and I fought that case for 18 months. And in that 18 months, my sister postponed her wedding three times because we weren't going to be able to explain how the eldest male in our family wasn't going to be able to be at the wedding because my court case kept getting moved. She called me the most selfish person she's ever met in her entire life. I hit her back with a profanity laced tirade and said, you don't understand what my life's like. That's the selfishness and self-centeredness that I bring into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I started a business because I didn't think I would ever work again. I never thought I'd get a job again as a federally convicted drug dealer. And I worked out of my friend's apartment and we would, uh, we would work from nine to four, go down to the basement where there was a convenience store, buy a case of beer, drink it. And I would go back to those clubs that I was drinking at. And, uh, and now I think I come to believe that alcohol kept me alive long enough to get to Alcoholics Anonymous because if I fought that case and didn't think I had anything to do, or any, any future in my life, I might have ended up like my dad. And uh, <clears throat> in December of that year, I got a DUI. So I could have gone to jail while waiting to go to prison and I didn't think alcohol was a problem. I thought I just was had a really case of that really bad luck. And, uh, and I prayed to this God that I didn't believe in because if you had my life, there wouldn't be a God. Uh, and what happened was uh, I, pled, uh, I had to plead guilty and God didn't work, right? Because I was using God like it talks about in the book, like a kid makes a list for Santa Claus. I just didn't want to go to prison. And so I ended up having to turn myself into the federal penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania on October 17th of 2002. And, uh, and what happened there is I believe God gave me my last chance. 
and uh, I had to, it was a boot camp program. We had to march two hours after chow every night. And, uh, and it was like, it was, it was literally military boot camp. It was, you know, physical exercise, class, hard labor, chow, rinse and repeat from 6am to 10pm. And uh, so it, after, after the first couple of Friday nights, I asked those guys what they were doing and they said they were in the A meeting. And they said, you should volunteer because you can sit down. I said, I'll volunteer. And so, uh, and that's how I got here. I was trying to sit down and uh, I joke about it, but I've been sitting down ever since. <clears throat> and, uh, and what happened was an elderly woman, an elderly man came into that prison without fear for their safety. The man had an oxygen tank and brought the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to people like me. I didn't care about Alcoholics Anonymous then. I didn't care about what they had to say. I just was trying to get over it. But I sat in that room long enough for a few weeks to finally ask her, what makes you an alcoholic? She said, what do you, you know, I described the phenomenon craving the obsession of the mind, the doctor's opinion, I believe deep down that is the definition of alcoholism. But she said it in this way, what do you do when you get envious? What do you do when you jealous? get jealous? What do you do when you get angry? You slowly kill yourself while the other person's even thinking about you. And I said, damn, I drank at people my entire life. My mom, my dad, my sister, my girlfriend, your girlfriend, you know, my cat, the dude that cut me off on the highway, the guy behind the counter at 7-Eleven, screw you, watch this, I'm at the liquor store, or I'm, I'm at the bar, and I'm drinking at these people while they're not even thinking about me. And it talks about it in the 4, 7, 12, and 12, beating ourselves up with a club of anger intended for someone else. So I went back to my bunk that night, and I wrote my mom a letter, and I said, I don't think I'm ever going to drink again, and I started to say the serenity prayer. Again, it's, you know, praying to this God that I didn't believe in, and I made it mine. I made this room for mine. I said, God, grant me the courage to change my life, the strength to do it, and the wisdom to know it's the right thing to do. And I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer, and I'll tell you what, I was telling this, that, I was just telling that story like six years sober, and I realized my prayer had been answered. And still being answered, because I'm sitting here with you guys sober today. And, uh, and now I am an absolute 100% firm believer in the power of prayer. I believe every single person in this room or in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is the result of somebody praying. You know, and uh, mother, father, brother, sister, boyfriend, girlfriend, uncle, aunt, somebody prayed and you're here. And if you don't believe that, that's fine. I'll believe it until you can. But uh, so I ended up getting out of that, that place and they told me I got to the pre-release center and they told me I had to go to AA meetings. And I said, you know, they said I had to go to three. I said, I'll go to one. I'm alcoholic. I get it. No, they said, you go to three. You go back to prison. I said, okay, I'll go to three because I'm alcoholic, but I'm not stupid. And uh, what happened was people uh, surrounded me, you know, they, they, they changed my life. What happened was a guy who I used to go to, who I used to drink with found out about my situation and I needed a sponsor so I could get a home pass. And I asked him to temporarily sponsor me and I, uh, and he would come to that apartment, that same apartment where I started the business and he would come three days a week and read the big book with me and eat and bring me lunch. And, uh, and that's cool. But, the crazy part about that is this man was actually not sober anymore. He was, he had been an Alcoholics Anonymous, but he knew enough that I needed help that he came and sat with me and, and helped me. And, uh, he ended up getting sober for a little bit again, but he ended up dying, uh, from this. And if it wasn't for people like the elderly man and the elderly woman that came to the prison or this man, Jeff, that came and spent their time, for a guy like me to get sober, I wouldn't be here today. And, uh, and that's why I don't believe that I can ever do enough for Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? I, uh, I started to go to meetings and um, 
And I'll tell you, I was not like, woohoo, you guys are my people. I am home. That was not it. I was listening to the stuff you guys were saying. And I'm like, you guys are nuts. Cause you do not say that kind of stuff out loud in public, you know? And, uh, but what happened was I started to shake my head, right? I started to shake my head and, uh, and normal people, not alcoholics don't sit in alcoholics, not as meeting and shake their heads in agreement, right? Their jaws drop. Uh, and so what happened was you guys were talking about the way I felt, the things that I did and the way I acted. And you clearly weren't thinking, acting or feeling that way anymore. And so I started, I started to come to meetings and I wasn't happy, but, uh, but I did it right. I did it because people told me to, and I got on my knees and I prayed to that God I didn't believe in. And, and I kept coming and, um, and I was about to leave AA and I called my sponsor and I said, I'm out of here. And, and he said, I didn't have any faith. And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't, I mean, I found God in prison. Like I was some guru now. Right. And what he was talking about was I didn't have faith in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because what happened was I was at the PRC, the pre-release center, and I had to go home right after the meeting. Home. I had to go back there. Well, I guess it was home. <clears throat> and then I had an ankle bracelet on, and I had 15 minutes before the meeting and 15 minutes after the meeting. So all I was doing was going to meetings. Now, please don't misinterpret what I say. Meetings are vitally important in my recovery. But meeting makers make it to a lot of meetings. I wasn't doing the program of recovery. I was coming to your meetings. I was eating your cookies, drinking your coffee, listening to your message, saying thank you very much, and I was leaving, right? I wasn't doing the 12 steps, and I was not doing any service. And the book clearly states that the same man will drink again, but it also says that the steps are designed to provide a character change sufficient enough to relieve the obsession to drink, right? So if I'm not doing any of that stuff, I am going to be the same man, and I'm destined to drink again. And that's why I was miserable in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got three service positions in 10 days, and uh, I started driving people around, man. And this was when they had minutes on your phone, and I was talking like 5,000 minutes a month, just people in AA. It was obscene. And, uh, and people in my group started to call me the happy Hindu because <laughs> I was just, I started to get happy in AA, you know, and, uh, and it was awesome. And then, you know, life happens. Life happens when you're sober or you're drunk, but life happens, right? And, uh, and what happened was I, I got sober and, it was about three years sober and I had lost that business that we had started. I didn't have any money. My car was dead. The girl I thought I was going to marry in AA left and my mom was sick. And then, uh, and in that period, three guys asked me to sponsor them. I was like, you know what, God, I don't need this. I need, I need a job. I need a girlfriend. I need some money. I need a car and I need my mom to be okay. And what happened was a friend of mine owned a gas station and he gave me a job now, I got to tell you, my worst fear after getting arrested was that I was going to be, my only job I was going to get was to be the Indian guy behind the counter at the gas station, you know? Now, I, I say this because I really, I want to be clear too, that I don't mean anything by this. What, God doesn't care what we do. He cares who we are. doesn't care if you're a garbage man or you're CEO. And it took me, I had an ego problem. But this guy gave me this job and... Uh, and I was in this bath, he had, I had to clean the public bathroom. And he was like, I was like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, you want me to clean the bathroom? And I was like, what I failed to realize is like three years, four years before that, I was cleaning the bathrooms in the federal prison for free, right? And, uh, and what happened was that one of those, <coughs> the next day, a guy I used to sponsor called me out of rehab and said he needed a sponsor. And I was like, 
I was in this bathroom on my knees crying because I'd never been in so much emotional pain. And, uh, and these three guys asked me to sponsor them and I started to do, you know, and then six months later, everything got better. I had a new job, a new, my, the girlfriend was back and my mom was better. I had a new car, like everything. And I asked my sponsor, what, what am I doing? Like, where's my reliance? And he said, what were you doing? Everything was going bad. Calling you. I was going to meetings. I was sponsoring guys, praying, doing service. And he said, what are you doing now? And I said the same stuff. I said, huh? <laughs> like, I didn't get it. Right. And, uh, and what it means is that it, it doesn't matter how I feel. It matters what I do. Right. It doesn't, I mean, the circumstances of my life are going to change on the outside all the time, whether it's in my favor or not in my favor. Right. But a friend of mine used to talk about, you know, it's going to work out. It's going to work out for me or it's going to work out against me, but it's going to work out. It doesn't change what I do. Right. It doesn't change what I do here. And that same scenario has happened to me three other times in sobriety. So four times in sobriety, I've been laid off. I've had a relationship problem. I've had a money problem and I've had, uh, you know, my mom was, something was wrong with my mom. My mom was sick. And, and each time I've, I've had three guys ask me to sponsor and I'm like, God, why are we doing this again? Why are we doing this again? Uh, one of those times I was about to get married and, uh, move out of the house that I lived in for 32 years with my mom. My mom took me back in after we, uh, after I got out of prison and I ended up taking care of her. I'm a mom's boy and I love her. And she took, I mean, man, I can't express to you how much I love that woman. And, uh, and she got sick and I was working at a job and, and I was in the ICU and found out that I got laid off. And I'm like, why God, why are we doing this? I'm about to get married in a month and we're moving into a new home six weeks. Like what's happening? Two weeks later, she, my mom needed 24 hour care and I didn't have a job. Somebody came from AA, sat with my mom, never met her a day in her life, came with her while I went to go for an interview for a whole day. Came back and those, that job gave me the interview and they let me start after the wedding and after we moved into the new house. I had the job and I got to take care of my mom. The last time it happened, I was having my first child and, uh, and we were having this kid and I'm like, God, why are we doing this, right? I, I need money, we're having a child. Right. And my, uh, I used to commute an hour and a half each way to D each way to my job in DC. I got laid off. I had a two month severance and I got to, I got to spend the first two months with my firstborn child with her every day. And then I ended up getting a job that's 20 minutes from my house and that's cool. And that's awesome. But my daughter has special needs and we had to put her in a preschool and we put her in a separate school. So for three days a week, I was able to pick her up, have lunch with her. And I want to argue why God is, why God is doing stuff to me, you know? And uh, my mom, I lived with my mom the last years of her life. And the thing that I, the thing that I, the greatest gift that Alcoholics Anonymous has ever given me was, the, was that my mom had peace of mind. From the day I got sober until the day she died, she knew exactly who I was and who I was with, and it was with you guys, and she didn't have to worry. The night she died, I was at, I went, like, it was her birthday. I kissed her on the forehead. I said, happy birthday, Mom, I love you. And she said, thank you for being here. I love you, too. And I left, and an hour later, her heart stopped. And uh, I got to do the, 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 I got to do the last rites of an Indian son, and I got to take my mom's ashes to India. And I got to spread them. And I used to have that spiritual experience with my wife and my sister. And I can assure you if I was drinking, I probably would have tried to convince them that we could have spread her ashes in the Potomac River and, and got it over with. 
And the thing is that if it wasn't for people like you and rooms like this and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have, I would have missed it all. I would have missed everything. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, please stay. If you've been here a while and been in and out, please stay. If you're here and you're not happy, joyous, and free, find someone is and do what they're doing. Jump in their back pocket. The book says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That is the closest thing to a guarantee you will ever get in Alcoholics Anonymous. So last thing, I know I, I'm a little over. There was a man who, along with my sponsor, his name was Larry O'Connor, and my sponsor's name is Joe, and those two men altered the trajectory of my life. Altered the trajectory of my life. And Larry taught me before he died that unspoken love and unspoken gratitude aren't worth a damn. If you're grateful, act like it. And they told me that gratitude was an action word. So do something for somebody else. And if you love someone, tell them so when their ears can hear it and their hearts can feel it. So if nobody's told you today, I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you for my life. And thank you for letting me share.